Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 32 from the time of my casual encounter with Karki the artist, my life was one of absolute wretchedness. Not a day passed, but I was persecuted by the solicitations of some of the natives to subject myself to the odious operation of tattooing. Their importunities drove me half wild, for I felt how easily they might work their will upon me regarding this or anything else which they took into their heads. Still, however, the behavior of the islanders towards me was as kind as ever. Fayaway was quite as engaging, Kori Kori as devoted, and Mahavi the king just as gracious and condescending as before. But I had now been three months in their valley, as nearly as I could estimate. I had grown familiar with the narrow limits to which my wanderings had been confined, and I began bitterly to feel the state of captivity in which I was held. There was no one with whom I could freely converse, no one to whom I could communicate my thoughts, no one who could sympathize with my sufferings. A thousand times I thought how much more endurable would have been my lot had Toby still been with me. But I was left alone, and the thought was terrible to me. Still, despite my griefs, I did all in my power to appear composed and cheerful, well knowing that by manifesting any uneasiness, or any desire to escape, I should only frustrate my object. It was during the period I was in this unhappy frame of mind that the painful malady under which I had been laboring, after having almost completely subsided, began again to show itself, and with symptoms as violent as ever. This added calamity nearly unmanned me. The recurrence of the complaint proved that without powerful remedial applications, all hope of cure was futile and when I reflected that just beyond the elevations which bound me in was the medical relief I needed, and that although so near, it was impossible for me to avail myself of it, the thought was misery. In this wretched situation, every circumstance which evinced the savage nature of the beings at whose mercy I was, augmented the fearful apprehensions that consumed me. An occurrence which happened about this time affected me most powerfully, I have already mentioned that from the ridge-pole of Marheo's house were suspended a number of packages enveloped in tapa. Many of these I had often seen in the hands of the natives, 
and their contents had been examined in my presence. But there were three packages, hanging very nearly over the place where I lay, which from their remarkable appearance had often excited my curiosity. Several times I had asked Cory Cory to show me their contents, but my servitor, who in almost every other particular had acceded to my wishes, always refused to gratify me in this. One day, returning unexpectedly from the tea, my arrival seemed to throw the inmates of the house into the greatest confusion. They were seated together on the mats, and by the lines which extended from the roof to the floor, I immediately perceived that the mysterious packages were for some purpose or other under inspection. The evident alarm the savages betrayed filled me with forebodings of evil, and with an uncontrollable desire to penetrate the secret so jealously guarded. Despite the efforts of Marheyo and Kori Kori to restrain me, I forced my way into the midst of the circle, and just caught a glimpse of three human heads, which others of the party were hurriedly enveloping in the coverings from which they had been taken. One of the three I distinctly saw. It was in a state of perfect preservation, and, from the slight glimpse I had of it, seemed to have been subjected to some smoking operation which had reduced it to the dry, hard, and mummy-like appearance it presented. Two long scalp-locks were twisted up into balls upon the crown of the head, in the same way that the individual had worn them during life. The sunken cheeks were rendered yet more ghastly by the rows of glistening teeth which protruded from between the lips, while the sockets of the eyes, filled with oval bits of mother-of-pearl shell, with a black spot in the center, heightened the hideousness of its aspect. Two of the three were heads of the islanders, but the third, to my horror, was that of a white man. Although it had been quickly removed from my sight, still the glimpse I had of it was enough to convince me that I could not be mistaken. Gracious God! What dreadful thoughts entered my mind! In solving this mystery, perhaps I had solved another, and the fate of my lost companion might be revealed in the shocking spectacle I had just witnessed. I longed to have torn off the folds of cloth, and satisfied the awful doubts under which I labored. But before I had recovered from the consternation into which I had been thrown, the fatal packages were hoisted aloft, and once more swung over my head. The natives now gathered round me tumultuously, and labored to convince me that what I had just seen were the heads of three Hapar warriors, who had been slain in battle. This glaring falsehood added to my alarm, and it was not until I reflected that I had observed the packages swinging from their elevation before Toby's disappearance that I could at all recover my composure. But although this horrible apprehension had been dispelled, I had discovered enough to fill me, in my present state of mind, with the most bitter reflections. It was plain that I had seen the last relic of some unfortunate wretch, who must have been massacred on the beach by the savages, in one of those perilous trading adventures which I have before described. It was not, however, alone the murder of the stranger that overcame me with gloom. I shuddered at the idea of the subsequent fate his inanimate body might have met with. Was the same doom reserved for me? Was I destined to perish like him, like him perhaps to be devoured, and my head to be preserved as a fearful memento of the event? My imagination ran riot in these horrid speculations. 
and I felt certain that the worst possible evils would befall me. But whatever were my misgivings, I studiously concealed them from the islanders, as well as the full extent of the discovery I had made. Although the assurances which the Taipees had often given me, that they never eat human flesh, had not convinced me that such was the case, yet having been so long a time in the valley without witnessing anything which indicated the existence of the practice, I began to hope that it was an event of very rare occurrence, and that I should be spared the horror of witnessing it during my stay among them. But alas, these hopes were soon destroyed. It is a singular fact that in all our accounts of cannibal tribes we have seldom received the testimony of an eyewitness to the revolting practice. The horrible conclusion has almost always been derived either from the second-hand evidence of Europeans, or else from the admissions of the savages themselves, after they have in some degree become civilized. The Polynesians are aware of the detestation in which Europeans hold this custom, and therefore invariably deny its existence, and with the craft peculiar to savages, endeavor to conceal every trace of it. The excessive unwillingness betrayed by the Sandwich Islanders, even at the present day, to allude to the unhappy fate of Cook, has been often remarked, and so well have they succeeded in covering that event with mystery, that to this very hour, despite all that has been said and written on the subject, it still remains doubtful whether they wreaked upon his murdered body the vengeance they sometimes inflicted upon their enemies. At Karakakova, the scene of that tragedy, a strip of ship's copper nailed against an upright post in the ground used to inform the traveler that beneath reposed the remains of the great circumnavigator. But I am strongly inclined to believe not only that the corpse was refused Christian burial, but that the heart which was brought to Vancouver some time after the event, and which the Hawaiians stoutly maintained was that of Captain Cook, was no such thing, and that the whole affair was a piece of imposture which was sought to be palmed off upon the credulous Englishman. A few years since there was living on the island of Maui, one of the sandwich group, an old chief, who, actuated by a morbid desire for notoriety, gave himself out among the foreign residents of the place as the living tomb of Captain Cook's big toe, affirming that at the cannibal entertainment which ensued after the lamented Britain's death, that particular portion of his body had fallen to his share. His indignant countrymen actually caused him to be prosecuted in the native courts, on a charge nearly equivalent to what we term defamation of character. But the old fellow persisting in his assertion, and no invalidating proof being adduced, the plaintiffs were cast in the suit, and the cannibal reputation of the defendant fully established. This result was the making of his fortune, Ever afterwards he was in the habit of giving very profitable audiences to all curious travelers who were desirous of beholding the man who had eaten the great navigator's great toe. About a week after my discovery of the contents of the mysterious packages, I happened to be at the tea when another war alarm was sounded, and the natives, rushing to their arms, sallied out to resist a second incursion of the Hapar invaders. The same scene was again repeated, only that on this occasion I heard at least fifteen reports of muskets from the mountains during the time that the skirmish lasted. An hour or two after its termination, 
loud paeans chanted through the valley announced the approach of the victors. I stood with Kori Kori leaning against the railing of the pipi awaiting their advance, when a tumultuous crowd of islanders emerged with wild clamors from the neighboring groves. In the midst of them marched four men, one preceding the other at regular intervals of eight or ten feet, with poles of a corresponding length, extended from shoulder to shoulder, to which were lashed with thongs of bark, three long, narrow bundles, carefully wrapped in ample coverings of freshly plucked palm leaves, tacked together with slivers of bamboo. Here and there upon these green winding sheets might be seen the stains of blood, while the warriors who carried the frightful burdens displayed upon their naked limbs similar sanguinary marks. The shaven head of the foremost had a deep gash upon it, and the clotted gore which had flowed from the wound remained in dry patches around it. This savage seemed to be sinking under the weight he bore. The bright tattooing upon his body was covered with blood and dust. His inflamed eyes rolled in their sockets, and his whole appearance denoted extraordinary suffering and exertion. Yet sustained by some powerful impulse, he continued to advance, while the throng around him with wild cheers sought to encourage him. The other three men were marked about the arms and breasts with several slight wounds, which they somewhat ostentatiously displayed. These four individuals, having been the most active in the late encounter, claimed the honor of bearing the bodies of their slain enemies to the tea. Such was the conclusion I drew from my own observations, and as far as I could understand, from the explanation which Cory Cory gave me. The royal Mahavi walked by the side of these heroes. He carried in one hand a musket, from the barrel of which was suspended a small canvas pouch of powder, and in the other he grasped a short javelin, which he held before him and regarded with fierce exultation. This javelin he had wrested from a celebrated champion of the Hapars, who had ignominiously fled, and was pursued by his foe beyond the summit of the mountain. When within a short distance of the tea, the warrior with the wounded head who proved to be Narmany, tottered forward two or three steps, and fell helplessly to the ground, but not before another had caught the end of the pole from his shoulder, and placed it upon his own. The excited throng of islanders, who surrounded the person of the king and the dead bodies of the enemy, approached the spot where I stood, brandishing their rude implements of warfare, many of which were bruised and broken, and uttering continual shouts of triumph, when the crowd drew up opposite the tee, I set myself to watch their proceedings most attentively, but scarcely had they halted when my servitor, who had left my side for an instant, touched my arm and proposed our returning to Marheyo's house. To this I objected, but to my surprise Cory Cory reiterated his request, and with an unusual vehemence of manner. Still, however, I refused to comply, and was retreating before him, as in his importunity he pressed upon me, when I felt a heavy hand laid upon my shoulder, and turning round, encountered the bulky form of Mau Mau, a one-eyed chief, who had just detached himself from the crowd below, and had mounted the rear of the pipi upon which we stood. His cheek had been pierced by the point of a spear, and the wound imparted a still more frightful expression to his hideously tattooed face already deformed by the loss of an eye. The warrior, without uttering a syllable, 
pointed fiercely in the direction of Marheyo's house, while Cory Cory, at the same time presenting his back, desired me to mount. I declined this offer, but intimated my willingness to withdraw, and moved slowly along the piazza, wondering what could be the cause of this unusual treatment. A few minutes' consideration convinced me that the savages were about to celebrate some hideous rite in connection with their peculiar customs, and at which they were determined I should not be present. I descended from the pipi, and attended by Cory Cory, who on this occasion did not show his usual commiseration for my lameness, but seemed only anxious to hurry me on, walked away from the place. As I passed through the noisy throng, which by this time completely environed the tea, I looked with fearful curiosity at the three packages, which now were deposited upon the ground. But although I had no doubt as to their contents, still their thick coverings prevented my actually detecting the form of a human body. The next morning, shortly after sunrise, the same thundering sounds which had awakened me from sleep on the second day of the Feast of Calabashes assured me that the savages were on the eve of celebrating another, and as I fully believed, a horrible solemnity. All the inmates of the house, with the exception of Marheyo, his son, and Tinor, after assuming their gala dresses, departed in the direction of the taboo groves. Although I did not anticipate a compliance with my request, still, with a view of testing the truth of my suspicions, I proposed to Cory Cory that according to our usual custom in the morning, we should take a stroll to the tea. He positively refused, and when I renewed the request, he evinced his determination to prevent my going there, and, to divert my mind from the subject, he offered to accompany me to the stream. We accordingly went and bathed. On our coming back to the house, I was surprised to find that all its inmates had returned, and were lounging upon the mats as usual although the drums still sounded from the groves. The rest of the day I spent with Cory Cory and Fayaway, wandering about a part of the valley situated in an opposite direction from the tea, and whenever I so much as looked towards that building, although it was hidden from view by intervening trees, and at the distance of more than a mile, my attendant would exclaim, Taboo! Taboo! At the various houses where we stopped, I found many of the inhabitants reclining at their ease, or pursuing some light occupation, as if nothing unusual were going forward. But amongst them all, I did not perceive a single chief or warrior. When I asked several of the people why they were not at the hula hula, the feast, they uniformly answered the question in a manner which implied that it was not intended for them, but for Mahavi, Narmini, Mau Mau, Kolar, Omanu, Kalau, running over, in their desire to make me comprehend their meaning, the names of all the principal chiefs. Everything, in short, strengthened my suspicions with regard to the nature of the festival they were now celebrating, and which amounted almost to a certainty. While in Nukahiva, I had frequently been informed that the whole tribe were never present at these cannibal banquets, but the chiefs and priests only, and everything I now observed agreed with the account. The sound of the drums continued without intermission the whole day, and falling continually upon my ear, caused me a sensation of horror which I am unable to describe. On the following day, hearing none of those noisy indications of revelry, I concluded that the inhuman feast was terminated, 
and feeling a kind of morbid curiosity to discover whether the tea might furnish any evidence of what had taken place there, I proposed to Kori Kori to walk there. To this proposition he replied by pointing with his finger to the newly risen sun, and then up to the zenith, intimating that our visit must be deferred until noon. Shortly after that hour we accordingly proceeded to the taboo groves, and as soon as we entered their precincts, I looked fearfully round in quest of some memorial of the scenes which had so lately been acted there, but everything appeared as usual. On reaching the tea, we found Mahavi and a few chiefs reclining on the mats, who gave me as friendly a reception as ever. No allusions of any kind were made by them to the recent events, and I refrained, for obvious reasons, from referring to them myself. After staying a short time, I took my leave. In passing along the piazza, previously to descending from the pee, pee I observed a curiously carved vessel of wood, of considerable size, with a cover placed over it of the same material, and which resembled in shape a small canoe. It was surrounded by a low railing of bamboos, the top of which was scarcely a foot from the ground. As the vessel had been placed in its present position since my last visit, I at once concluded that it must have some connection with the recent festival, and, prompted by a curiosity I could not repress, in passing it I raised one end of the cover. At the same moment, the chiefs, perceiving my design, loudly ejaculated, Taboo! Taboo! But the slight glimpse sufficed. My eyes fell upon the disordered members of a human skeleton, the bones still fresh with moisture, and with particles of flesh, clinging to them here and there. Kori Kori, who had been a little in advance of me, attracted by the exclamations of the chiefs, turned round in time to witness the expression of horror on my countenance. He now hurried towards me, pointing at the same time to the canoe and exclaiming rapidly, Puarki, Puarki! Pig, pig! I pretended to yield to the deception and repeated the words after him several times, as though acquiescing in what he said. The other savages, either deceived by my conduct or unwilling to manifest their displeasure at what could not now be remedied, took no further notice of the occurrence, and I immediately left the tea. All that night I lay awake, revolving in my mind the fearful situation in which I was placed. The last horrid revelation had now been made, and the full sense of my condition rushed upon my mind with a force I had never before experienced. Where, thought I, desponding, is there the slightest prospect of escape? The only person who seemed to possess the ability to assist me was the stranger Marnu, but would he ever return to the valley? And if he did, should I be permitted to hold any communication with him? It seemed as if I were cut off from every source of hope, and that nothing remained but passively to await whatever fate was in store for me. A thousand times I endeavored to account for the mysterious conduct of the natives. For what conceivable purpose did they thus retain me a captive? What could be their object in treating me with such apparent kindness? And did it not cover some treacherous scheme? Or, if they had no other design than to hold me a prisoner, how should I be able to pass away my days in this narrow valley? deprived of all intercourse with civilized beings, and forever separated from friends and home. One only hope remained to me. 
the French could not long defer a visit to the bay, and if they should permanently locate any of their troops in the valley, the savages could not for any length of time conceal my existence from them. But what reason had I to suppose that I should be spared until such an event occurred, an event which might be postponed by a hundred different contingencies? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 33 Marnu! Marnu, pay me! Such were the welcome sounds which fell upon my ear some ten days after the events related in the preceding chapter. Once more the approach of the stranger was heralded, and the intelligence operated upon me like magic. Again I should be able to converse with him in my own language, and I resolved at all hazards to concert with him some scheme, however desperate, to rescue me from a condition that had now become insupportable. As he drew near, I remembered with many misgivings the inauspicious termination of our former interview, and when he entered the house, I watched with intense anxiety the reception he met with from its inmates. To my joy his appearance was hailed with the liveliest pleasure, and accosting me kindly, he seated himself by my side, and entered into conversation with the natives around him. It soon appeared, however, that on this occasion he had not any intelligence of importance to communicate. I inquired of him from whence he had last come. He replied from Puyarca, his native valley, and that he intended to return to it the same day. At once it struck me that could I but reach that valley under his protection, I might easily from thence reach Nukahiva by water, and animated by the prospect which this plan held out, I disclosed it in a few brief words to the stranger, and asked him how it could be best accomplished. My heart sunk within me, when in his broken English he answered me that it could never be effected. Kanaka, no let you go nowhere, he said. You, taboo. Why you no like to stay? Plenty moi moi, sleep. Plenty kiki, eat. Plenty wahene, young girls. Oh, very good place, Taipee. Suppose you no like this bay, why you come? You no hear about Taipee. All white men afraid Taipee, so no white men come. These words distressed me beyond belief, and when I again related to him the circumstances under which I had descended into the valley, and sought to enlist his sympathies in my behalf by appealing to the bodily misery I endured, he listened to me with impatience, and cut me short by exclaiming passionately, Me no hear you talk any more. By by Kanaka get mad. Kill you, and me too. No you see he no want you to speak to me at all? You see. Ah, by by you no mind. You get well, he kill you, eat you, hang you head up there like Hepar Kanaka. Now you listen, but no talk any more. By by I go. You see way I go. Ah, then some night, Kanaka al moi moi sleep. You run away. You come, Puyarka. I speak, Puyarka Kanaka. He no harm you. Ah, then I take you my canoe, Nukahiva, and you no runaway ship no more. With these words, enforced by a vehemence of gesture I cannot describe, Marnus started from my side, 
and immediately engaged in conversation with some of the chiefs who had entered the house. It would have been idle for me to have attempted resuming the interview so peremptorily terminated by Marnu, who was evidently little disposed to compromise his own safety by any rash endeavors to ensure mine. But the plan he had suggested struck me as one which might possibly be accomplished, and I resolved to act upon it as speedily as possible. Accordingly, when he rose to depart, I accompanied him with the natives outside of the house, with a view of carefully noting the path he would take in leaving the valley. Just before leaping from the peepee, he clasped my hand, and looking significantly at me, exclaimed, Now you see, you do what I tell you, ah, then you do good, you no do so, ah, then you die. The next moment he waved his spear in adieu to the islanders, and following the route that conducted to a defile in the mountains lying opposite the Hepar side, was soon out of sight. A mode of escape was now presented to me, but how was I to avail myself of it? I was continually surrounded by the savages. I could not stir from one house to another without being attended by some of them, and even during the hours devoted to slumber, the slightest movement which I made seemed to attract the notice of those who shared the mats with me. In spite of these obstacles, however, I determined forthwith to make the attempt. To do so with any prospect of success, it was necessary that I should have at least two hours' start before the islanders should discover my absence. For with such facility was any alarm spread through the valley, and so familiar, of course, were the inhabitants with the intricacies of the groves, that I could not hope, lame and feeble as I was, and ignorant of the route, to secure my escape unless I had this advantage. It was also by night alone that I could hope to accomplish my object, and then only by adopting the utmost precaution. The entrance to Marheyo's habitation was through a low, narrow opening in its wickerwork front. This passage, for no conceivable reason that I could devise, was always closed after the household had retired to rest, by drawing a heavy slide across it, composed of a dozen or more bits of wood, ingeniously fastened together by seizings of sinate. When any of the inmates chose to go outside, the noise occasioned by the removing of this rude door awakened everybody else, and on more than one occasion I had remarked that the islanders were nearly as irritable as more civilized beings under similar circumstances. The difficulty thus placed in my way I determined to obviate in the following manner. I would get up boldly in the course of the night, and drawing the slide, issue from the house, and pretend that my object was merely to procure a drink from the calabash, which always stood without the dwelling on the corner of the peepee. On re-entering, I would purposely omit closing the passage after me, and trusting that the indolence of the savages would prevent them from repairing my neglect, would return to my mat, and waiting patiently until all were again asleep, I would then steal forth, and at once take the route to Puyarka. The very night which followed Marnu's departure, I proceeded to put this project into execution. About midnight, as I imagined, I rose and drew the slide. The natives, just as I had expected, started up, while some of them asked, Arwore Puawa Tamo? Where are you going, Tamo? Why, water, I laconically answered, grasping the calabash. On hearing my reply, they sank back again and in a minute or two I returned to my mat, anxiously awaiting the result of the experiment. 
one after another, the savages turning restlessly, appeared to resume their slumbers, and rejoicing at the stillness which prevailed, I was about to rise again from my couch, when I heard a slight rustling. A dark form was intercepted between me and the doorway. The slide was drawn across it, and the individual, whoever he was, returned to his mat. This was a sad blow to me. But as it might have roused the suspicions of the islanders to have made another attempt that night, I was reluctantly obliged to defer it until the next. Several times after I repeated the same maneuver, but with as little success as before. As my pretense for withdrawing from the house was to allay my thirst, Cory Cory, either suspecting some design on my part, or else prompted by a desire to please me, regularly every evening placed a calabash of water by my side. Even under these inauspicious circumstances, I again and again renewed the attempt. But when I did so, my valet always rose with me, as if determined I should not remove myself from his observation. For the present, therefore, I was obliged to abandon the attempt, but I endeavored to console myself with the idea that by this mode I might yet effect my escape. Shortly after Marner's visit, I was reduced to such a state that it was with extreme difficulty I could walk, even with the assistance of a spear, and Cory Cory, as formerly, was obliged to carry me daily to the stream. For hours and hours during the warmest part of the day, I lay upon my mat, and while those around me were nearly all dozing away in careless ease, I remained awake, gloomily pondering over the fate which it appeared now idle for me to resist. When I thought of the loved friends who were thousands and thousands of miles from the savage island in which I was held a captive, when I reflected that my dreadful fate would forever be concealed from them, and that with hope deferred they might continue to await my return long after my inanimate form had blended with the dust of the valley, I could not repress a shudder of anguish. How vividly is impressed upon my mind every minute feature of the scene which met my view during those long days of suffering and sorrow. At my request, my mats were always spread directly facing the door, opposite which, and at a little distance, was the hut of boughs that Marheya was building. Whenever my gentle Fayaway and Cory Cory, laying themselves down beside me, would leave me a while to uninterrupted repose, I took a strange interest in the slightest movements of the eccentric old warrior. All alone, during the stillness of the tropical midday, he would pursue his quiet work, sitting in the shade and weaving together the leaflets of his coconut branches, or rolling upon his knee the twisted fibers of bark to form the cords with which he tied together the thatching of his tiny house. Frequently suspending his employment, and noticing my melancholy eye fixed upon him, he would raise his hand with a gesture expressive of deep commiseration, and then, moving towards me slowly, would enter on tiptoes, fearful of disturbing the slumbering natives, and, taking the fan from my hand, would sit before me, swaying it gently to and fro, and gazing earnestly into my face. Just beyond the PP, and disposed in a triangle before the entrance of the house, were three magnificent breadfruit trees. At this moment I can recall to my mind their slender shafts and the graceful inequalities of their bark, on which my eye was accustomed to dwell day after day in the midst of my solitary musings. 
It is strange how inanimate objects will twine themselves into our affections, especially in the hour of affliction. Even now, amidst all the bustle and stir of the proud and busy city in which I am dwelling, the image of those three trees seems to come as vividly before my eyes as if they were actually present, and I still feel the soothing quiet pleasure which I then had in watching, hour after hour, their topmost boughs waving gracefully in the breeze. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 34 Nearly three weeks had elapsed since the second visit of Marnu, and it must have been more than four months since I entered the valley, when one day about noon, and whilst everything was in profound silence, Mau Mau, the one-eyed chief, suddenly appeared at the door, and leaning forward towards me as I lay directly facing him, said in a low tone, Toby pay me ena. Toby has arrived here. Gracious heaven! What a tumult of emotions rushed upon me at this startling intelligence! Insensible to the pain that had before distracted me, I leaped to my feet, and called wildly to Kori Kori, who was reposing by my side. The startled islanders sprang from their mats, the news was quickly communicated to them, and the next moment I was making my way to the tea on the back of Kori Kori, and surrounded by the excited savages. All that I could comprehend of the particulars which Mau Mau rehearsed to his auditors as we proceeded was that my long-lost companion had arrived in a boat which had just entered the bay. These tidings made me most anxious to be carried at once to the sea, lest some untoward circumstance should prevent our meeting. But to this they would not consent, and continued their course towards the royal abode. As we approached it, Mahavi and several chiefs showed themselves from the piazza, and called upon us loudly to come to them. As soon as we had approached, I endeavored to make them understand that I was going down to the sea to meet Toby. To this the king objected, and motioned Kori Kori to bring me into the house. It was in vain to resist, and in a few moments I found myself within the tea, surrounded by a noisy group engaged in discussing the recent intelligence. Toby's name was frequently repeated, coupled with violent exclamations of astonishment. It seemed as if they yet remained in doubt with regard to the fact of his arrival, and at every fresh report that was brought from the shore, they betrayed the liveliest emotions. Almost frenzied at being held in this state of suspense, I passionately besought Mahavi to permit me to proceed. Whether my companion had arrived or not, I felt a presentiment that my own fate was about to be decided. Again and again I renewed my petition to Mahavi. He regarded me with a fixed and serious eye, but at length, yielding to my importunity, reluctantly granted my request. Accompanied by some fifty of the natives, I now rapidly continued my journey, every few moments being transferred from the back of one to another, and urging my bearer forward all the while with earnest entreaties. As I thus hurried forward, no doubt as to the truth of the information I had received ever crossed my mind. I was alive only to the one overwhelming idea, that a chance of deliverance was now afforded me, 
if the jealous opposition of the savages could be overcome. Having been prohibited from approaching the sea during the whole of my stay in the valley, I had always associated with it the idea of escape. Toby, too, if indeed he had ever voluntarily deserted me, must have effected his flight by the sea, and now that I was drawing near to it myself, I indulged in hopes which I had never felt before. It was evident that a boat had entered the bay, and I saw little reason to doubt the truth of the report that it had brought my companion. Every time, therefore, that we gained an elevation, I looked eagerly around, hoping to behold him. In the midst of an excited throng, who by their violent gestures and wild cries appeared to be under the influence of some excitement as strong as my own, I was now borne along at a rapid trot, frequently stooping my head to avoid the branches which crossed the path, and never ceasing to implore those who carried me to accelerate their already swift pace. In this manner we had proceeded about four or five miles, when we were met by a party of some twenty islanders, between whom and those who accompanied me ensued an animated conference. Impatient of the delay occasioned by this interruption, I was beseeching the man who carried me to proceed without his loitering companions, when Kori Kori, running to my side, informed me, in three fatal words, that the news had all proved false, that Toby had not arrived. Toby Auli Pemi. Heaven only knows how, in the state of mind and body I then was, I ever sustained the agony which this intelligence caused me. Not that the news was altogether unexpected, but I had trusted that the fact might not have been made known until we should have arrived upon the beach. As it was, I at once foresaw the course the savages would pursue. They had only yielded thus far to my entreaties that I might give a joyful welcome to my long-absent comrade. But now that it was known he had not arrived, they would at once oblige me to turn back. My anticipations were but too correct. In spite of the resistance I made, they carried me into a house which was near the spot, and left me upon the mats. Shortly afterwards, several of those who had accompanied me from the tea, detaching themselves from the others, proceeded in the direction of the sea. Those who remained, among whom were Marheyo, Mau Mau, Kori Kori, and Tinor, gathered about the dwelling, and appeared to be awaiting their return. This convinced me that strangers, perhaps some of my own countrymen, had for some cause or other entered the bay. Distracted at the idea of their vicinity, and reckless of the pain which I suffered, I heeded not the assurances of the islanders that there were no boats at the beach, but starting to my feet endeavored to gain the door. Instantly the passage was blocked up by several men, who commanded me to resume my seat. The fierce looks of the irritated savages admonished me that I could gain nothing by force, and that it was by entreaty alone that I could hope to compass my object. Guided by this consideration, I turned to Mau Mau, the only chief present whom I had been much in the habit of seeing, and carefully concealing my real design, tried to make him comprehend that I still believed Toby to have arrived on the shore, and besought him to allow me to go forward to welcome him. To all his repeated assertions that my companion had not been seen, I pretended to turn a deaf ear, while I urged my solicitations with an eloquence of gesture which the one-eyed chief appeared unable to resist. He seemed indeed to regard me as a froward child, 
to whose wishes he had not the heart to oppose force, and whom he must consequently humor. He spoke a few words to the natives, who at once retreated from the door, and I immediately passed out of the house. Here I looked earnestly round for Cory Cory, but that hitherto faithful servitor was nowhere to be seen. Unwilling to linger even for a single instant when every moment might be so important, I motioned to a muscular fellow near me to take me upon his back. To my surprise, he angrily refused. I turned to another, but with a like result. A third attempt was as unsuccessful, and I immediately perceived what had induced Mau Mau to grant my request, and why the other natives conducted themselves in so strange a manner. It was evident that the chief had only given me liberty to continue my progress towards the sea, because he supposed that I was deprived of the means of reaching it. Convinced by this of their determination to retain me a captive, I became desperate, and almost insensible to the pain which I suffered, I seized a spear which was leaning against the projecting eaves of the house, and supporting myself with it, resumed the path that swept by the dwelling. To my surprise I was suffered to proceed alone, all the natives remaining in front of the house, and engaging in earnest conversation, which every moment became more loud and vehement, and to my unspeakable delight, I perceived that some difference of opinion had arisen between them, that two parties, in short, were formed, and consequently that in their divided counsels there was some chance of my deliverance. Before I had proceeded a hundred yards I was again surrounded by the savages, who were still in all the heat of argument, and appeared every moment as if they would come to blows. In the midst of this tumult, old Marheyo came to my side, and I shall never forget the benevolent expression of his countenance. He placed his arm upon my shoulder, and emphatically pronounced the only two English words I had taught him, home and mother. I at once understood what he meant, and eagerly expressed my thanks to him. Fayaway and Cory Cory were by his side, both weeping violently, and it was not until the old man had twice repeated the command that his son could bring himself to obey him, and take me again upon his back. The one-eyed chief opposed his doing so, but he was overruled, and, as it seemed to me, by some of his own party. We proceeded onwards, and never shall I forget the ecstasy I felt when I first heard the roar of the surf breaking upon the beach. Before long I saw the flashing billows themselves through the opening between the trees, O glorious sight and sound of ocean! With what rapture did I hail you as familiar friends! By this time the shouts of the crowd upon the beach were distinctly audible, and in the blended confusion of sounds I almost fancied I could distinguish the voices of my own countrymen. When we reached the open space which lay between the groves and the sea, the first object that met my view was an English whaleboat, lying with her bow pointed from the shore and only a few fathoms distant from it. It was manned by five islanders, dressed in short tunics of calico. My first impression was that they were in the very act of pulling out from the bay, and that after all my exertions I had come too late. My soul sunk within me, but a second glance convinced me that the boat was only hanging off to keep out of the surf, and the next moment I heard my own name shouted out by a voice from the midst of the crowd. Looking in the direction of the sound, 
I perceived, to my indescribable joy, the tall figure of Karakoi, an Oahu Kanaka, who had often been aboard the dolly while she lay in Nukahiva. He wore the green shooting jacket with gilt buttons, which had been given to him by an officer of the Reine Blanche, the French flagship, and in which I had always seen him dressed. I now remembered the Kanaka had frequently told me that his person was tabooed in all the valleys of the island, and the sight of him at such a moment as this filled my heart with a tumult of delight. Karakoi stood near the edge of the water, with a large roll of cotton cloth thrown over one arm, and holding two or three canvas bags of powder, while with the other hand he grasped a musket, which he appeared to be proffering to several of the chiefs around him. But they turned with disgust from his offers, and seemed to be impatient at his presence, with vehement gestures waving him off to his boat, and commanding him to depart. The Kanaka, however, still maintained his ground, and I at once perceived that he was seeking to purchase my freedom. Animated by the idea, I called upon him loudly to come to me, but he replied in broken English that the islanders had threatened to pierce him with their spears if he stirred a foot towards me. At this time I was still advancing, surrounded by a dense throng of the natives, several of whom had their hands upon me, and more than one javelin was threateningly pointed at me. Still I perceived clearly that many of those least friendly towards me looked irresolute and anxious. I was still some thirty yards from Karakoe when my farther progress was prevented by the natives, who compelled me to sit down upon the ground, while they still retained their hold upon my arms. The din and tumult now became tenfold, and I perceived that several of the priests were on the spot, all of whom were evidently urging Mau Mau and the other chiefs to prevent my departure, and the detestable word, Rune, Rune, which I had heard repeated a thousand times during the day, was now shouted out on every side of me. Still I saw that the Kanaka continued his exertions in my favor, that he was boldly debating the matter with the savages, and was striving to entice them by displaying his cloth and powder, and snapping the lock of his musket. But all he said or did appeared only to augment the clamors of those around him, who seemed bent upon driving him into the sea. When I remembered the extravagant value placed by these people upon the articles which were offered to them in exchange for me, and which were so indignantly rejected, I saw a new proof of the same fixed determination of purpose they had all along manifested with regard to me, and in despair, and reckless of consequences, I exerted all my strength, and shaking myself free from the grasp of those who held me, I sprung upon my feet and rushed towards Karakoi. The rash attempt nearly decided my fate, for, fearful that I might slip from them, several of the islanders now raised a simultaneous shout and pressing upon Karakoi, they menaced him with furious gestures, and actually forced him into the sea. Appalled at their violence, the poor fellow, standing nearly to the waist in the surf, endeavored to pacify them. But at length, fearful that they would do him some fatal violence, he beckoned to his comrades to pull in at once, and take him into the boat. It was at this agonizing moment, when I thought all hope was ended, that a new contest arose between the two parties who had accompanied me to the shore. Blows were struck, wounds were given, and blood flowed. In the interest excited by the fray, everyone had left me except Marheyo, Kori Kori, and poor dear Fayaway, 
who clung to me, sobbing indignantly. I saw that now or never was the moment. Clasping my hands together, I looked imploringly at Marheyo, and moved towards the now almost deserted beach. The tears were in the old man's eyes, but neither he nor Kori Kori attempted to hold me, and I soon reached the Kanaka, who had been anxiously watching my movements. The rowers pulled in as near as they dared to the edge of the surf. I gave one parting embrace to Fayaway, who seemed speechless with sorrow, and the next instant I found myself safe in the boat, and Karakoi by my side, who told the rowers at once to give way. Marheo and Kori Kori, and a great many of the women, followed me into the water, and I was determined, as the only mark of gratitude I could show, to give them the articles which had been brought as my ransom. I handed the musket to Kori Kori, with a rapid gesture which was equivalent to a deed of gift, threw the roll of cotton to old Marheo, pointing as I did so to poor Fayaway, who had retired from the edge of the water, and was sitting down disconsolate on the shingles, and tumbled the powder-bags out to the nearest young ladies, all of whom were vastly willing to take them. This distribution did not occupy ten seconds, and before it was over, the boat was under full way, the Kanaka all the while exclaiming loudly against what he considered a useless throwing away of valuable property. Although it was clear that my movements had been noticed by several of the natives, still they had not suspended the conflict in which they were engaged, and it was not until the boat was above fifty yards from the shore that Mau Mau and some six or seven other warriors rushed into the sea and hurled their javelins at us. Some of the weapons passed quite as close to us as was desirable, but no one was wounded, and the men pulled away gallantly. But although soon out of the reach of the spears, our progress was extremely slow. It blew strong upon the shore, and the tide was against us, and I saw Karakoi, who was steering the boat, give many a look towards a jutting point of the bay round which we had to pass. For a minute or two after our departure, the savages, who had formed into different groups, remained perfectly motionless and silent. All at once, the enraged chief showed by his gestures that he had resolved what course he would take. Shouting loudly to his companions, and pointing with his tomahawk towards the headland, he set off at full speed in that direction, and was followed by about thirty of the natives, among whom were several of the priests, all yelling out, Rune! Rune! at the very top of their voices. Their intention was evidently to swim off from the headland, and intercept us in our course. The wind was freshening every minute, and was right in our teeth, and it was one of those chopping angry seas in which it is so difficult to row. Still the chances seemed in our favor, but when we came within a hundred yards of the point, the active savages were already dashing into the water, and we all feared that within five minutes' time we should have a score of the infuriated wretches around us. If so, our doom was sealed, for these savages, unlike the feeble swimmers of civilized countries, or, if anything, more formidable antagonists in the water than when on the land. It was all a trial of strength. Our natives pulled till their oars bent again, and the crowd of swimmers shot through the water, despite its roughness, with fearful rapidity. By the time we had reached the headland, the savages were spread right across our course. Our rowers got out their knives, and held them ready between their teeth, and I seized the boat-hook. 
we were well aware that if they succeeded in intercepting us, they would practice upon us the maneuver which has proved so fatal to many a boat's crew in these seas. They would grapple the oars, and seizing hold of the gunwale, capsize the boat, and then we should be entirely at their mercy. After a few breathless moments I discerned Mau Mau. The athletic islander, with his tomahawk between his teeth, was dashing the water before him till it foamed again. He was the nearest to us, and in another instant he would have seized one of the oars. Even at the moment I felt horror at the act I was about to commit, but it was no time for pity or compunction, and with a true aim, and exerting all my strength, I dashed the boat-hook at him. It struck him just below the throat, and forced him downwards. I had no time to repeat my blow, but I saw him rise to the surface in the wake of the boat, and never shall I forget the ferocious expression of his countenance. Only one other of the savages reached the boat. He seized the gunwale, but the knives of our rowers so mauled his wrists that he was forced to quit his hold, and the next minute we were past them all, and in safety. The strong excitement which had thus far kept me up now left me, and I fell back fainting into the arms of Karakoi. The circumstances connected with my most unexpected escape may be very briefly stated. The captain of an Australian vessel, being in distress for men in these remote seas, had put into Nukahiva in order to recruit his ship's company, but not a single man was to be obtained, and the bark was about to get under way when she was boarded by Karakoi, who informed the disappointed Englishman that an American sailor was detained by the savages in the neighboring bay of Taipee, and he offered if supplied with suitable articles of traffic, to undertake his release. The Kanaka had gained his intelligence from Marnu, to whom, after all, I was indebted for my escape. The proposition was acceded to, and Karakoi, taking with him five tabooed natives of Nukahiva, again repaired aboard the bark, which in a few hours sailed to that part of the island, and threw her main topsail aback right off the entrance to the Taipei Bay. The whaleboat, manned by the tabooed crew, pulled towards the head of the inlet, while the ship lay off and on, awaiting its return. The events which ensued have already been detailed, and little more remains to be related. On reaching the Julia, I was lifted over the side, and my strange appearance and remarkable adventure occasioned the liveliest interest. Every attention was bestowed upon me that humanity could suggest, but to such a state was I reduced that three months elapsed before I recovered my health. The mystery which hung over the fate of my friend and companion Toby has never been cleared up. I still remain ignorant whether he succeeded in leaving the valley or perished at the hands of the islanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Appendix The author of this volume arrived at Tahiti the very day that the iniquitous designs of the French were consummated by inducing the subordinate chiefs, during the absence of their queen, to ratify an artfully drawn treaty by which she was virtually deposed. Both menaces and caresses were employed on this occasion, 
and the thirty-two pounders which peeped out of the portholes of the frigate were the principal arguments adduced to quiet the scruples of the more conscientious islanders. And yet this piratical seizure of Tahiti, with all the woe and desolation which resulted from it, created not half so great a sensation, at least in America, as was caused by the proceedings of the English at the Sandwich Islands. No transaction has ever been more grossly misrepresented than the events which occurred upon the arrival of Lord George Pollitt at Oahu. During a residence of four months at Honolulu, the metropolis of the group, the author was in the confidence of an Englishman who was much employed by his lordship, and great was the author's astonishment on his arrival at Boston, in the autumn of 1844, to read the distorted accounts and fabrications which had produced in the United States so violent an outbreak of indignation against the English. He deems it, therefore, a mere act of justice towards a gallant officer, briefly to state the leading circumstances connected with the event in question. It is needless to rehearse all the abuse that for some time previous to the spring of 1843 had been heaped upon the British residents, especially upon Captain Charlton, her Britannic Majesty's Consul General, by the native authorities of the Sandwich Islands. High in the favor of the imbecile king at this time was one Dr. Judd, a sanctimonious apothecary adventurer, who, with other kindred and influential spirits, were animated by an inveterate dislike to England. The ascendancy of a junto of ignorant and designing Methodist elders in the councils of a half-civilized king, ruling with absolute sway over a nation just poised between barbarism and civilization, and exposed by the peculiarities of its relations with foreign states to unusual difficulties, was not precisely calculated to impart a healthy tone to the policy of the government. At last, matters were brought to such an extremity, through the iniquitous maladministration of affairs, that the endurance of further insults and injuries on the part of the British consul was no longer to be borne. Captain Charlton, insultingly forbidden to leave the islands, clandestinely withdrew, and arriving at Valparaiso, conferred with Rear Admiral Thomas, the English commander-in-chief on the Pacific Station. In consequence of this communication, Lord George Pollitt was dispatched by the Admiral in the Craysfort frigate to inquire into and correct the alleged abuses. On arriving at his destination, he sent his first lieutenant ashore with a letter to the king, couched in terms of the utmost courtesy, and soliciting the honor of an audience. The messenger was denied access to his majesty, and Pollitt was coolly referred to Dr. Judd, and informed that the apothecary was invested with plenary powers to treat with him. Rejecting this insolent proposition, his lordship again addressed the king by letter, and renewed his previous request, but he encountered another repulse. Justly indignant at this treatment, he penned a third epistle, enumerating the grievances to be redressed, and demanding a compliance with his requisitions, under penalty of immediate hostilities. The government was now obliged to act, and an artful stroke of policy was decided upon by the despicable counsellors of the king to entrap the sympathies and rouse the indignation of Christendom. His majesty was made to intimate to the British captain that he could not, as the conscientious ruler of his beloved people, comply with the arbitrary demands of his lordship, and in deprecation of the horrors of war, tendered to his acceptance the provisional cession of the islands, 
subject to the result of the negotiations then pending in London. Pollitt, a bluff and straightforward sailor, took the king at his word, and after some preliminary arrangements entered upon the administration of Hawaiian affairs, in the same firm and benignant spirit which marked the discipline of his frigate, and which had rendered him the idol of his ship's company. He soon endeared himself to nearly all orders of the islanders, but the king and the chiefs, whose feudal sway over the common people is laboriously sought to be perpetuated by their missionary advisers, regarded all his proceedings with the most vigilant animosity. Jealous of his growing popularity, and unable to counteract it, they endeavored to assail his reputation abroad, by ostentatiously protesting against his acts, and appealing in oriental phrase to the wide universe to witness and compassionate their unparalleled wrongs. Heedless of their idle clamors, Lord George Pollitt addressed himself to the task of reconciling the differences among the foreign residents, remedying their grievances, promoting their mercantile interests, and ameliorating, as far as lay in his power, the condition of the degraded natives. The iniquities he brought to light, and instantly suppressed, are too numerous to be here recorded. But one instance may be mentioned, that will give some idea of the lamentable misrule to which these poor islanders are subjected. It is well known that the laws at the Sandwich Islands are subject to the most capricious alterations, which, by confounding all ideas of right and wrong in the minds of the natives, produce the most pernicious effects. In no case is this mischief more plainly discernible than in the continually shifting regulations concerning licentiousness. At one time, the most innocent freedoms between the sexes are punished with fine and imprisonment. At another, the revocation of the statute is followed by the most open and undisguised profligacy. It so happened that at the period of Pollitt's arrival, the Connecticut Blue Laws had been for at least three weeks steadily enforced. In consequence of this, the fort at Honolulu was filled with a great number of young girls, who were confined there doing penance for their slips from virtue. Pollitt, although at first unwilling to interfere with regulations having reference solely to the natives themselves, was eventually, by the prevalence of certain reports, induced to institute a strict inquiry into the internal administration of General Keikonoa, governor of the island of Oahu, one of the pillars of the Hawaiian church, and captain of the fort. He soon ascertained that numbers of the young females employed during the day at work intended for the benefit of the king were at night smuggled over the ramparts of the fort, which on one side directly overhangs the sea, and were conveyed by stealth on board such vessels as had contracted with the general to be supplied with them. Before daybreak they returned to their quarters, and their own silence with regard to these secret excursions was purchased by a small portion of those wages of iniquity which were placed in the hands of Kekuanoa. The vigor with which the laws concerning licentiousness were at that period enforced enabled the general to monopolize in a great measure the detestable trade in which he was engaged, and there consequently flowed into his coffers, and some say into those of the government also, considerable sums of money. It is indeed a lamentable fact that the principal revenue of the Hawaiian government is derived from the fines levied upon, or rather the licenses taken out by, vice, the prosperity of which is linked with that of the government. Were the people to become virtuous, the authorities would become poor. 
but from present indications there is little apprehension to be entertained on that score. Some five months after the date of the session, the Dublin frigate, carrying the flag of Rear Admiral Thomas, entered the harbor of Honolulu. The excitement that her sudden appearance produced on shore was prodigious. Three days after her arrival, an English sailor hauled down the red cross which had been flying from the heights of the fort, and the Hawaiian colors were again displayed upon the same staff. At the same moment, the long forty-two pounders upon Punchbowl Hill opened their iron throats in triumphant reply to the thunders of the five men-of-war in the harbor, and King Kamehameha III, surrounded by a splendid group of British and American officers, unfurled the royal standard to assembled thousands of his subjects, who, attracted by the imposing military display of the foreigners, had flocked to witness the formal restoration of the islands to their ancient rulers. The admiral, after sanctioning the proceedings of his subaltern, had brought the authorities to terms, and so removed the necessity of acting any longer under the provisional session. The event was made an occasion of riotous rejoicing by the king and the principal chiefs, who easily secured a display of enthusiasm from the inferior orders, by remitting for a time the accustomed severity of the laws. Royal proclamations in English and Hawaiian were placarded in the streets of Honolulu, and posted up in the more populous villages of the group, in which His Majesty announced to his loving subjects the re-establishment of his throne, and called upon them to celebrate it by breaking through all moral, legal, and religious restraint for ten consecutive days, during which time all the laws of the land were solemnly declared to be suspended. Who that happened to be at Honolulu during those ten memorable days will ever forget them? The spectacle of universal broad-day debauchery, which was then exhibited, beggars description. The natives of the surrounding islands flocked to Honolulu by hundreds, and the crews of two frigates, opportunely let loose like so many demons to swell the heathenish uproar, gave the crowning flourish to the scene. It was a sort of Polynesian Saturnalia, Deeds too atrocious to be mentioned were done at noonday in the open street, and some of the islanders, caught in the very act of stealing from the foreigners, were, on being taken to the fort by the aggrieved party, suffered immediately to go at large and to retain the stolen property. Kekuanoa, informing the white men, with a sardonic grin, that the laws were hanapa, tied up. The history of these ten days reveals in their true colors the character of the Sandwich Islanders, and furnishes an eloquent commentary on the results which have flowed from the labors of the missionaries. Freed from the restraints of severe penal laws, the natives almost to a man had plunged voluntarily into every species of wickedness and excess, and by their utter disregard of all decency plainly showed that although they had been schooled into a seeming submission to the new order of things, they were in reality as depraved and vicious as ever. Such were the events which produced in America so general an outbreak of indignation against the spirited and high-minded Paulet. He is not the first man who, in the fearless discharge of his duty, has awakened the senseless clamors of those whose narrow-minded suspicions blind them to a proper appreciation of measures which unusual exigencies may have rendered necessary. It is almost needless to add that the British cabinet never had any idea of appropriating the islands, 
and it furnishes a sufficient vindication of the acts of Lord George Paulet that he not only received the unqualified approbation of his own government, but that to this hour the great body of the Hawaiian people invoke blessings on his head, and look back with gratitude to the time when his liberal and paternal sway diffused peace and happiness among them. The End This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. The Story of Toby, a sequel to Typee, by the author of that work. Note to the Sequel. The author was more than two years in the South Seas after escaping from the valley, as recounted in the last chapter. Some time after returning home, the foregoing narrative was published, though it was little thought at the time that this would be the means of revealing the existence of Toby, who had long been given up for lost, but so it proved. The story of his escape supplies a natural sequel to the adventure, and as such it is now added to the volume. It was related to the author by Toby himself, not ten days since. New York, July, 1846 Sequel The morning my comrade left me, as related in the narrative, he was accompanied by a large party of the natives, some of them carrying fruit and hogs for the purposes of traffic, as the report had spread that boats had touched at the bay. As they proceeded through the settled parts of the valley, members joined them from every side, running with animated cries from every pathway. So excited were the whole party, that eager as Toby was to gain the beach, it was almost as much as he could do to keep up with them. Making the valley ring with their shouts, they hurried along on a swift trot, those in advance pausing now and then, and flourishing their weapons to urge the rest forward. Presently they came to a place where the path crossed a bend of the main stream of the valley. Here a strange sound came through the grove beyond, and the islanders halted. It was Mau Mau, the one-eyed chief, who had gone on before. He was striking his heavy lance against the hollow bough of a tree. This was a signal of alarm, for nothing was now heard but shouts of, Hepar! Hepar! the warriors tilting with their spears and brandishing them in the air, and the women and boys shouting to each other and picking up the stones in the bed of the stream. In a moment or two, Mau Mau and two or three other chiefs ran out from the grove, and the din increased tenfold. Now, thought Toby, for a fray, and being unarmed, he besought one of the young men domiciled with Marheyo for the loan of his spear, but he was refused the youth roguishly telling him that the weapon was very good for him, the Taipee, but that a white man could fight much better with his fists. The merry humor of this young wag seemed to be shared by the rest, for in spite of their warlike cries and gestures, everybody was capering about and laughing, as if it was one of the funniest things in the world to be awaiting the flight of a score or two of Hapar javelins from an ambush in the thickets. While my comrade was in vain trying to make out the meaning of all this, a good number of the natives separated themselves from the rest and ran off into the grove on one side, the others now keeping perfectly still, as if awaiting the result. 
After a little while, however, Mau Mau, who stood in advance, motioned them to come on stealthily, which they did, scarcely rustling a leaf. Thus they crept along for ten or fifteen minutes, every now and then pausing to listen. Toby by no means relished this sort of skulking. If there was going to be a fight, he wanted it to begin at once, but all in good time, for just then, as they went prowling into the thickest of the wood, terrific howls burst upon them on all sides, and volleys of darts and stones flew across the path. Not an enemy was to be seen, and what was still more surprising, not a single man dropped, though the pebbles fell among the leaves like hail. There was a moment's pause, when the Taipees, with wild shrieks, flung themselves into the covert, spear in hand, nor was Toby behindhand. Coming so near getting his skull broken by the stones, and animated by an old grudge he bore the hapars, he was among the first to dash at them. As he broke his way through the underbrush, trying, as he did so, to wrest a spear from a young chief, the shouts of battle all of a sudden ceased, and the wood was as still as death. The next moment, the party who had left them so mysteriously rushed out from behind every bush and tree, and united with the rest in long and merry peals of laughter. It was all a sham, and Toby, who was quite out of breath with excitement, was much incensed at being made a fool of. It afterwards turned out that the whole affair had been concerted for his particular benefit, though with what precise view it would be hard to tell. My comrade was the more enraged at this boy's play since it had consumed so much time, every moment of which might be precious. Perhaps, however, it was partly intended for this very purpose, and he was led to think so, because when the natives started again, he observed that they did not seem to be in so great a hurry as before. At last, after they had gone some distance, Toby thinking all the while that they never would get to the sea, two men came running towards them, and a regular halt ensued, followed by a noisy discussion, during which Toby's name was often repeated. All this made him more and more anxious to learn what was going on at the beach, but it was in vain that he now tried to push forward. The natives held him back. In a few moments the conference ended, and many of them ran down the path in the direction of the water, the rest surrounding Toby and entreating him to moe, or sit down and rest himself. As an additional inducement, several calabashes of food which had been brought along were now placed on the ground and opened, and pipes also were lighted. Toby bridled his impatience a while, but at last sprang to his feet and dashed forward again. He was soon overtaken nevertheless and again surrounded, but without further detention was then permitted to go down to the sea. They came out upon a bright green space between the groves and the water, and close under the shadow of the Hapar mountain, where a path was seen, winding out of sight through a gorge. No sign of a boat, however, was beheld, nothing but a tumultuous crowd of men and women, and someone in their midst, earnestly talking to them. As my comrade advanced, this person came forward and proved to be no stranger. He was an old grizzled sailor whom Toby and myself had frequently seen in Nukahiva, where he lived an easy devil-may-care life in the household of Moana the king, going by the name of Jimmy. In fact, he was the royal favorite, and had a good deal to say in his master's councils. 
he wore a manila hat and a sort of tapa morning gown, sufficiently loose and negligent to show the verse of a song tattooed upon his chest, and a variety of spirited cuts by native artists in other parts of his body. He sported a fishing rod in his hand, and carried a sooty old pipe slung about his neck. This old rover, having retired from active life, had resided in Ukahiva some time, could speak the language, and for that reason was frequently employed by the French as an interpreter. He was an errant old gossip, too, forever coming off in his canoe to the ships in the bay, and regaling their crews with choice little morsels of court scandal, such, for instance, as a shameful intrigue of his majesty with a hapar damsel, a public dancer at the feasts, and otherwise relating some incredible tales about the Marquesas generally. I remember in particular his telling the dolly's crew what proved to be literally a cock-and-bull story, about two natural prodigies which he said were then on the island. One was an old monster of a hermit, having a marvelous reputation for sanctity, and reputed a famous sorcerer, who lived away off in a den among the mountains, where he hid from the world a great pair of horns that grew out of his temples. Notwithstanding his reputation for piety, this horrid old fellow was the terror of all the island round, being reported to come out from his retreat and go a-man-hunting every dark night. Some anonymous Paul Pry, too, coming down the mountain, once got a peep at his den and found it full of bones. In short, he was a most unheard-of monster. The other prodigy Jimmy told us about was the younger son of a chief, who, although but just turned of ten, had entered upon holy orders, because his superstitious countrymen thought him especially intended for the priesthood from the fact of his having a comb on his head like a rooster. But this was not all, for still more wonderful to relate, the boy prided himself upon this strange crest, being actually endowed with a cock's voice, and frequently crowing over his peculiarity. But to return to Toby. The moment he saw the old rover on the beach, he ran up to him, the natives following after, and forming a circle round them. After welcoming him to the shore, Jimmy went on to tell him how that he knew all about our having run away from the ship, and being among the Taipees. Indeed, he had been urged by Moana to come over to the valley, and after visiting his friends there, to bring us back with him, his royal master being exceedingly anxious to share with him the reward which had been held out for our capture. He, however, assured Toby that he had indignantly spurned the offer. All this astonished my comrade not a little, as neither of us had entertained the least idea that any white man ever visited the Taipees sociably. But Jimmy told him that such was the case nevertheless, although he seldom came into the bay, and scarcely ever went back from the beach. One of the priests of the valley, in some way or other connected with an old tattooed divine in Ukahiva, was a friend of his, and through him he was taboo. He said, moreover, that he was sometimes employed to come round to the bay and engage fruit for ships lying in Nukahiva. In fact, he was now on that very errand, according to his own account, having just come across the mountains by the way of Hapar. By noon of the next day, the fruit would be heaped up in stacks on the beach, in readiness for the boats, which he then intended to bring into the bay. Jimmy now asked Toby whether he wished to leave the island. If he did, there was a ship in want of men lying in the other harbor, 
and he would be glad to take him over and see him on board that very day. No, said Toby, I cannot leave the island unless my comrade goes with me. I left him up the valley because they would not let him come down. Let us go now and fetch him. But how is he to cross the mountain with us, replied Jimmy, even if we get him down to the beach? Better let him stay till tomorrow, and I will bring him round to Nukahiva in the boats. That will never do, said Toby. But come along with me now, and let us get him down here at any rate. And yielding to the impulse of the moment, he started to hurry back into the valley. But hardly was his back turned, when a dozen hands were laid on him, and he learned that he could not go a step further. It was in vain that he fought with them. They would not hear of his stirring from the beach. Cut to the heart at this unexpected repulse, Toby now conjured the sailor to go after me alone. But Jimmy replied that in the mood the Typees then were, they would not permit him so to do, though at the same time he was not afraid of their offering him any harm. Little did Toby then think, as he afterwards had good reason to suspect, that this very Jimmy was a heartless villain, who, by his arts, had just incited the natives to restrain him as he was in the act of going after me. Well must the old sailor have known, too, that the natives would never consent to our leaving together, and he therefore wanted to get Toby off alone, for a purpose which he afterwards made plain. Of all this, however, my comrade now knew nothing. He was still struggling with the islanders when Jimmy again came up to him, and warned him against irritating them, saying that he was only making matters worse for both of us, and if they became enraged, there was no telling what might happen. At last he made Toby sit down on a broken canoe by a pile of stones, upon which was a ruinous little shrine supported by four upright paddles, and in front partly screened by a net. The fishing parties met there, when they came in from the sea, for their offerings were laid before an image upon a smooth black stone within. This spot, Jimmy said, was strictly taboo, and no one would molest or come near him while he stayed by its shadow. The old sailor then went off, and began speaking very earnestly to Mau Mau and some other chiefs, while all the rest formed a circle round the taboo place, looking intently at Toby, and talking to each other without ceasing. Now notwithstanding what Jimmy had just told him, there presently came up to my comrade an old woman, who seated herself beside him on the canoe. Taipi Mortarki, said she. Mortarki Nui, said Toby. She then asked him whether he was going to Nukahiva. He nodded yes, and with a plaintive wail and her eyes filling with tears, she rose and left him. This old woman, the sailor afterwards said, was the wife of an aged king of a small inland valley, communicating by a deep pass with the country of the Taipees. The inmates of the two valleys were related to each other by blood, and were known by the same name. The old woman had gone down into the Taipi Valley the day before, and was now with three chiefs, her sons, on a visit to her kinsmen. As the old king's wife left him, Jimmy again came up to Toby, and told him that he had just talked the whole matter over with the natives, and there was only one course for him to follow. They would not allow him to go back into the valley, and harm would certainly come to both him and me if he remained much longer on the beach. So, said he, you and I had better go to Nukahiva now overland, 
and tomorrow I will bring Tamo, as they call him, by water. They have promised to carry him down to the sea for me early in the morning, so that there will be no delay. No, no, said Toby desperately. I will not leave him that way. We must escape together. Then there is no hope for you, exclaimed the sailor, for if I leave you here on the beach, as soon as I am gone you will be carried back into the valley, and then neither of you will ever look upon the sea again. And with many oaths he swore that if he would only go to Nukahiva with him that day, he would be sure to have me there the very next morning. But how do you know they will bring him down to the beach tomorrow, when they will not do so today? said Toby. But the sailor had many reasons, all of which were so mixed up with the mysterious customs of the islanders, that he was none the wiser. Indeed their conduct, especially in preventing him from returning into the valley, was absolutely unaccountable to him, and added to everything else was the bitter reflection that the old sailor, after all, might possibly be deceiving him. And then again he had to think of me, left alone with the natives, and by no means well. If he went with Jimmy, he might at least hope to procure some relief for me. But might not the savages who had acted so strangely hurry me off somewhere before his return? Then, even if he remained, perhaps they would not let him go back into the valley where I was. Thus perplexed was my poor comrade. He knew not what to do and his courageous spirit was of no use to him now. There he was, all by himself, seated upon the broken canoe, the natives grouped around him at a distance, and eyeing him more and more fixedly. "'It is getting late,' said Jimmy, who was standing behind the rest. "'Nukahiva is far off, and I cannot cross the Hapar country by night. You see how it is. If you come along with me, all will be well. If you do not, depend upon it, Neither of you will ever escape. There is no help for it, said Toby at last, with a heavy heart. I will have to trust you. And he came out from the shadow of the little shrine, and cast a long look up the valley. Now keep close to my side, said the sailor, and let us be moving quickly. Tinor and Fayaway here appeared, the kind-hearted old woman embracing Toby's knees and giving way to a flood of tears while Fayaway, hardly less moved, spoke some few words of English she had learned, and held up three fingers before him. In so many days he would return. At last Jimmy pulled Toby out of the crowd, and after calling to a young Taipee who was standing by with a young pig in his arms, all three started for the mountains. "'I have told them that you are coming back again,' said the old fellow laughing, as they began the ascent but they'll have to wait a long time. Toby turned, and saw the natives all in motion, the girls waving their tapas in adieu, and the men their spears. As the last figure entered the grove, with one arm raised, and the three fingers spread, his heart smote him. As the natives had at last consented to his going, it might have been that some of them, at least, really counted upon his speedy return, probably supposing, as indeed he had told them when they were coming down the valley, that his only object in leaving them was to procure the medicines I needed. This Jimmy also must have told them. And as they had done before, when my comrade, to oblige me, started on his perilous journey to Nukahiva, 
they looked upon me in his absence as one of two inseparable friends who was a sure guarantee for the other's return. This is only my own supposition, however, for as to all their strange conduct, it is still a mystery. "'You see what sort of a taboo man I am,' said the sailor, after for some time silently following the path which led up the mountain. "'Mau Mau made me a present of this pig here.' and the man who carries it will go right through Hapar and down into Nukahiva with us. So long as he stays by me, he is safe, and just so it will be with you, and tomorrow with Tomo. Cheer up then, and rely upon me. You will see him in the morning. The ascent of the mountain was not very difficult, owing to its being near to the sea, where the island ridges are comparatively low. The path, too, was a fine one so that in a short time all three were standing on the summit with the two valleys at their feet. The white cascades marking the green head of the Taipei Valley first caught Toby's eye. Marheyo's house could easily be traced by them. As Jimmy led the way along the ridge, Toby observed that the valley of the Hapars did not extend near so far inland as that of the Taipees. This accounted for our mistake in entering the latter valley as we had. A path leading down from the mountain was soon seen, and following it, the party were in a short time fairly in the Hapar Valley. Now, said Jimmy, as they hurried on, we taboo men have wives in all the bays, and I'm going to show you the two I have here. So when they came to the house where he said they lived, which was close by the base of the mountain, in a shady nook among the groves, he went in, and was quite furious at finding it empty. The ladies had gone out. However, they soon made their appearance, and, to tell the truth, welcomed Jimmy quite cordially, as well as Toby, about whom they were very inquisitive. Nevertheless, as the report of their arrival spread, and the Hapars began to assemble, it became evident that the appearance of a white stranger among them was not by any means deemed so wonderful an event as in the neighboring valley. The old sailor now bade his wives prepare something to eat, as he must be in Nukahiba before dark. A meal of fish, breadfruit, and bananas was accordingly served up, the party regaling themselves on the mats, in the midst of a numerous company. The Hapars put many questions to Jimmy about Toby, and Toby himself looked sharply at them, anxious to recognize the fellow who gave him the wound from which he was still suffering. But this fiery gentleman, so handy with his spear, had the delicacy, it seemed, to keep out of view. Certainly the sight of him would not have been any added inducement to making a stay in the valley, some of the afternoon loungers in Hapar having politely urged Toby to spend a few days with them. There was a feast coming on. He, however, declined. All this while the young Taipee stuck to Jimmy like his shadow, and though as lively a dog as any of his tribe, he was now as meek as a lamb, never opening his mouth except to eat. Although some of the Hapars looked queerly at him, others were more civil, and seemed desirous of taking him abroad and showing him the valley. But the Taipee was not to be cajoled in that way. How many yards he would have to remove from Jimmy before the taboo would be powerless, it would be hard to tell, but probably he himself knew to a fraction. On the promise of a red cotton handkerchief, and something else which he kept secret, this poor fellow had undertaken a rather ticklish journey, 
though, as far as Toby could ascertain, it was something that had never happened before. The island punch, Arva, was brought in at the conclusion of the repast, and passed round in a shallow calabash. Now my comrade, while seated in the Hapar house, began to feel more troubled than ever at leaving me. Indeed, so sad did he feel that he talked about going back to the valley, and wanted Jimmy to escort him as far as the mountains. But the sailor would not listen to him, and, by way of diverting his thoughts, pressed him to drink of the arva. Knowing its narcotic nature, he refused, but Jimmy said he would have something mixed with it, which would convert it into an innocent beverage that would inspirit them for the rest of their journey. So at last he was induced to drink of it, and its effects were just as the sailor had predicted. His spirits rose at once, and all his gloomy thoughts left him. The old rover now began to reveal his true character, though he was hardly suspected at the time. "'If I get you off to a ship,' said he, "'you will surely give a poor fellow something for saving you.' In short, before they left the house, he made Toby promise that he would give him five Spanish dollars if he succeeded in getting any part of his wages advanced from the vessel aboard of which they were going. Toby, moreover, engaging to reward him still further, as soon as any deliverance was accomplished. A little while after this they started again, accompanied by many of the natives, and going up the valley, took a steep path near its head, which led to Nukahiva. Here the Hepars paused, and watched them as they ascended the mountain, one group of bandit-looking fellows shaking their spears and casting threatening glances at the poor Taipee, whose heart as well as heels seemed much the lighter when he came to look down upon them. On gaining the heights once more, their way led for a time along several ridges covered with enormous ferns. At last they entered upon a wooded tract, and here they overtook a party of Nukahiva natives, well armed, and carrying bundles of long poles. Jimmy seemed to know them all very well, and stopped for a while, and had a talk about the wee-wees, as the people of Nukahiva call the messieurs. The party with the poles were King Moana's men, and by his orders they had been gathering them in the ravines for his allies the French. Leaving these fellows to trudge on with their loads, Toby and his companions now pushed forward again, as the sun was already low in the west. They came upon the valleys of Nukahiva on one side of the bay, where the highlands slope off into the sea. The men of war were still lying in the harbor, and as Toby looked down upon them, the strange events which had happened so recently seemed all a dream. They soon descended towards the beach, and found themselves in Jimmy's house before it was well dark. Here he received another welcome from his Nukahiva wives, and after some refreshments in the shape of coconut milk and poey-poey, they entered a canoe, the Taipei, of course, going along, and paddled off to a whale-ship which was anchored near the shore. This was the vessel in want of men. Our own had sailed some time before. The captain professed great pleasure at seeing Toby, but thought from his exhausted appearance that he must be unfit for duty. However, he agreed to ship him, as well as his comrade, as soon as he should arrive. Toby begged hard for an armed boat, in which to go round to Typee and rescue me, notwithstanding the promises of Jimmy. 
But this the captain would not hear of, and told him to have patience, for the sailor would be faithful to his word. When, too, he demanded the five silver dollars for Jimmy, the captain was unwilling to give them. But Toby insisted upon it, as he now began to think that Jimmy might be a mere mercenary, who would be sure to prove faithless, if not well paid. Accordingly, he not only gave him the money, but took care to assure him, over and over again, that as soon as he brought me aboard, he would receive a still larger sum. Before sunrise the next day, Jimmy and the Taipee started in two of the ship's boats, which were manned by tabooed natives. Toby, of course, was all eagerness to go along, but the sailor told him that if he did, it would spoil all. So, hard as it was, he was obliged to remain. Towards evening he was on the watch, and described the boats turning the headland and entering the bay. He strained his eyes and thought he saw me, but I was not there. Descending from the mast almost distracted, he grappled Jimmy as he struck the deck, shouting in a voice that startled him, Where is Tomo? The old fellow faltered, but soon recovering, did all he could to soothe him, assuring him that it had proved to be impossible to get me down to the shore that morning, assigning many plausible reasons, and adding that early on the morrow he was going to visit the bay again in a French boat, when, if he did not find me on the beach, as this time he certainly expected to, he would march right back into the valley, and carry me away at all hazards. He, however, again refused to allow Toby to accompany him. Now, situated as Toby was, his sole dependence for the present was upon this Jimmy, and therefore he was fain to comfort himself as well as he could with what the old sailor told him. The next morning, however, he had the satisfaction of seeing the French boat start with Jimmy in it. Tonight, then, I will see him, thought Toby, but many a long day passed before he ever saw Tomo again. Hardly was the boat out of sight when the captain came forward and ordered the anchor weighed. He was going to sea. Vain were all Toby's ravings. They were disregarded, and when he came to himself, the sails were set, and the ship fast leaving the land. Oh, he said to me at our meeting, what sleepless nights were mine. Often I started from my hammock, dreaming you were before me and upbraiding me for leaving you on the island. There is little more to be related. Toby left this vessel at New Zealand, and after some further adventures, arrived home in less than two years after leaving the Marquesas. He always thought of me as dead, and I had every reason to suppose that he too was no more. But a strange meeting was in store for us, one which made Toby's heart all the lighter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.